0: No necessary. prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hi, everybody. This is Paula.
3: And this is Steve.
2: And we wanted to give a shout out to our two newest Patreon supporters.
3: So a big thank you to Douglas, who joined Jonathan at the tear we call the camp directors.
2: Thanks, Doug and Jonathan. And we welcome to our family, Krista. Who joined at the tier we call our camp counselors. Our other camp counselors are Lynn, Tiffany, Heidi, Vicki, and our original Patreon matriarch, Mary Beth.
3: Uh, do you think it's okay with Mary Beth to be called our matriarch?
2: Uh, you know, I think under the circumstances, absolutely. And thanks to the partners we call our campers and our Bigfoot.
3: Well, I think if we have more than one Bigfoot, aren't they Bigfeet?
2: Ah, good question. You know what? I'm going to get with Shane over at From the Shadows podcast. I'll get back to you on that. Either way, shout out to Adam, Austin, Jenny, Melissa, Kaylin, Corin, Megan, Mark, Sarah, Paula, Bradley, and Laura, Harry, Wendy, Justin, Mickey, MP Banks, Jana, Linda, and Molly.
3: Now on with the show. Whoa! one welcome to ohio mysteries you're listening to a clip of girl's best friend by steel ivory these talented sisters from reynoldsburg are our featured ohio musical artists tonight so hang out with us to the end of the podcast we'll tell you all about them and let you listen to that entire song But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal.
2: Hi, everybody. There's an unofficial list that's called The Seven Wonders of the World. It's been adapted so many times, people have just added to the name. Seven Wonders of the Ancient World, Seven Wonders of the Modern World, Seven Wonders of the Natural World, and the like. But whoever makes up these lists, often they include Niagara Falls, a stunning set of three waterfalls where New York State meets Canada across the Niagara River. It's the third largest falls in the world in terms of volume, and it's estimated that every year 30 million people go out of their way just to gaze upon the white foamy cascade and the nearly constant rainbow that hovers there. No doubt, a significant share of those visitors are Ohioans, some of whom are a mere two- to four-hour drive from this world-class attraction. Back in 1912, a lot of folks along the Lake Erie shoreline would simply hop a train to the falls and spend the day or perhaps the night. That was the plan for Burrell Heckock and Ignatius Roth, a couple of 17-year-old pals who worked as clerks in the Lakeshore Electric Railway offices in Cleveland. On Saturday, February third, 1912, Burrell originally expected to be headed to Chicago. He was waiting for a pass to arrive that would allow him to travel on another division of the railroad he worked for. But when the pass didn't arrive in time, his buddy Ignatius, whom everyone called Iggy, suggested they head the opposite direction on the rail line, to Niagara Falls instead. They made plans to leave that evening. Burrell was the only child of Harry and Annabelle Hecock. His first name was Isaac, but he preferred to go by his middle name, which was an ancestral surname. And that Saturday evening, he had a whole household full of people sending him off. It's because a family party had gathered by chance that evening, including his grandma, who lived out of the city. They were going to spend Sunday together so they all bid Burrell farewell as he left the house on East 117th Street and headed to the station. His mom's last words to him were, Be careful, spoken as he hurried down the front steps of the porch. Those very words were repeated a few miles away as Iggy Roth left his home on Fulton Road Southwest. Don't worry, Iggy called back to his cautioning mom. Sunday, February 4, was a typical winter day, but there is a special beauty at Niagara Falls when parts of the river freeze and the edges of the falling water turn to white glass clinging to the rocky cliffs. Actually, winter afforded a unique experience at the attraction because once in a while, Huge, thick chunks of ice pouring over the falls or breaking off from the base would move down the river a few hundred yards and jam together, creating an ice bridge. It allowed visitors to cross between the U.S. and Canada on the river surface. Of course, there were traditional metal international bridges located downstream a little further, but the ice bridge offered a much closer perspective of the thunderous Horseshoe Falls that wasn't available any other time of the year, as well as a unique playground. Venturing onto an ice bridge wasn't without some risk. After all, there had been that incident on January 22, 1899, when the ice broke, but the 36 people caught on it all escaped shore. Because it wasn't unusual for the ice bridge to be more than eight feet thick, most folks felt perfectly safe. Some ambitious residents even built temporary wooden concession stands on them to cater to the tourists. This time around, the ice bridge had been holding firm for nearly three weeks. The word was getting around. At 1 p.m., trains were expected to be delivering hundreds of visitors. But when our story takes place, it's noon, a slow time, with just 35 people on the ice. And this early crowd was a married couple, 32-year-old Eldridge Stanton and his 28-year-old wife, Clara. They were natives of Toronto, and ever since marrying six years earlier, they had made a point of visiting the falls twice a year, once in the summer and once in the winter. They left their daughter at home and arrived on Friday for the weekend. Sunday was their final day, and they intended to visit some friends, but at the last minute, Clara voiced her desire to cross the ice bridge. And so there they were, strolling hand in hand across the craggy feature. Also in this early crowd was Burrell Heckhock and Iggy Roth. When the two got to the falls, Burrell purchased a postcard showing the ice-covered cliffs and dashed on it a quick note to his grandma back home. Having a fine time, he wrote. Then he addressed it to Hannah Burrell of Lorain, Ohio, and dropped it in a mail slot before venturing onto the ice. The boys tossed snowballs and played leapfrog on the bulging ice features. They nodded to William Hill, who showed up to open the small refreshment shack that he built each time the ice bridge formed. With him were two other men, Monroe Gilbert and William LeBlond. Suddenly, Hill felt a small tremor under his feet, followed by a loud groan. Hill knew what it meant. The ice was breaking. Iggy and Burrell felt and heard it, too. At first, Iggy laughed, albeit nervously, but they didn't think they were in any danger. The pair had walked across the ice bridge to the Canadian side where Burrell had snapped some photographs with a camera he had bought. The first rumbles came when they were halfway back to the American side and saw people running. They ran, too. Burrell dropped the camera, Instinctively, Iggy bent to pick it up, but Burrell snatched it from him, smashed the camera on the ice, and shouted, "This is no time for cameras. We're running for our lives." The concession owner William Hill and his companions Gilbert and LeBlond had made a break for the Canadian side of the river. Burrell and Iggy followed right behind them. Elridge and Clara Stanton broke in the opposite direction headed for the American side. It was the wrong choice. The ice sheet heaved up and down until the force of the movement broke it free from the shoreline, and as the Stantons neared the edge of the river, suddenly there was a wide gap of water in front of them. They stood in shock for a moment, then turned and ran to the other side. But Clara couldn't make it. She slowed, then stumbled to the ice from exhaustion, just 50 feet from the Canadian shore. Eldridge was worn himself from sprinting back and forth in the frigid air on a piece of ground that was bucking beneath him. He couldn't lift his wife and struggled to even drag her. Mr. Stanton looked at the two young Cleveland men who were within earshot. I have to ask help from one of you, he said. Burrell turned and immediately ran to their side. Iggy turned as well, but later explained that with one man on either side of the woman, there wasn't much he could do but get out of the way. The men on the Canadian shore, at the bottom of the cliff just at the foot of Eastwood Street, were calling to him. The water was already exposed between the ice sheet and the land. When Iggy hesitated to enter the icy water, the man named LeBlond went in up to his waist, holding on to a rope that was anchored by his friend William Hill. He reached for Iggy, and together they clambered across chunks of ice as they were pulled to shore. The Stantons, however, seemed to have given up. Clara was weak and terror-stricken. "'I can't go on. I can't go on,' she said. "'Let us die here.' And then she began to pray. The men on shore continued to call and encourage them, but it was too late. The gap between the shore and the ice flow had grown too wide. Burrell and the Stantons were stranded. Iggy thought he saw in their eyes an understanding of the peril they were in. Iggy called to his friend, Can't you make it? To which Burrell shouted back, No, don't tell my mother. Minutes later, the current carried Burrell and the Stantons out of Iggy's hearing. This would be a good time to describe this part of the Niagara if you're not familiar with it. When the waterfall descends to the lower river, there's a large, seemingly calm pool at the base. They call it the plunge pool, and it's calm enough that excursion boats take tourists up and into the mist. But there are 76,000 gallons of water falling every second. And obviously, this water has to go somewhere. So there is a constant undercurrent, very slowly moving it all downstream. Maybe half a mile from this calmer area at the base, the water begins to funnel into a deep but narrow gorge that nature has carved out over millennia. This creates treacherous rapids that bang over exposed rock and speed the water along until, a mile from the falls, it slams into a 90 degree bend in the river that causes an unforgiving whirlpool that devours everything. As word that the ice bridge had gone out flashed throughout the cities on either side of the river, local residents raced to the site. From their perch at the top of the gorge, they witnessed events below with helpless horror. Burrell and Mr. Stanton were pacing back and forth on the ice sheet as it kept a course midstream. The two men were then seen talking while Clara stood holding her husband's hand. Along the lower river was a hydroelectric station discharging water into the river, And when the flow got near enough to be affected by it, the discharge crumbled part of the ice and broke it into two small pieces. By the worst of luck, Burrell and the Stantons were on the wrong piece. The piece they weren't on drifted to the American shoreline and grounded out. But their chunk stayed the course in the middle of the stream. There are three bridges spanning the lower river. The trio passed beneath the first bridge. But while the ice flows were moving, they were still in a stretch that had a leisurely pace. Firemen, policemen, and railway workers from both countries had time to assemble on the other two bridges, and they had a desperate rescue plan. From the second bridge, they dangled ropes to the river's surface. Before the castaways reached the cantilever bridge, the ice sheet broke again. This time, it separated Burrell from the Stantons. They were each on pieces measuring about 200 square feet. Burrell was seen waving to them and shouting something, and Eldridge, his arm around his wife's waist, returned a salute. If you look on the internet, you'll find a picture someone took of Burrell, standing alone on his ice floe, his hand in the air as if waving. With the rapids approaching, the floes were beginning to pick up speed. Burrell was the first to reach the second bridge. On top of the cantilever bridge, men dangled ropes 200 feet down to the river's surface. Burrell took off his overcoat and reached for one, he grabbed it with twenty men holding the other end. Burrell let the ice sheet pass beneath his feet, but the give in the rope plunged him waist deep into the water. Before the men could hoist him out, three flows of jutting ice took turns battering him. Then up he went, twenty feet, then forty, then sixty feet above the water. Onlookers cheered and cried at the same time. Burrell grimly hung on, trying to climb hand over hand at first, and then making an effort to wind the rope around his legs. Finally, he tried grasping the rope with his teeth. But at this point, Burrell had been on the ice for nearly an hour. The sheer exhaustion of it all, the dip in the frigid water, the beating by the ice flows, It was just all too much. To make matters worse, the rope was spinning him like a top. He finally lost his grip and plunged 60 feet into the river. People saw Burrell's surface, feebly move his arms in a breaststroke, but the rapids had begun. After half a minute, he disappeared beneath the spume of the white water. The Stantons had watched it all as they approached the second bridge themselves. When it came their turn, Mr. Stanton grabbed the nearest rope and looped it around his wife's waist. But as soon as the rope went taut, it broke. Eldridge held the broken end toward the crowd and waved so they could see. Then the ice sheet carried them forward 300 yards to their final chance at rescue, the third span the lower street bridge. Again, ropes were dangling before them. Mr. Stanton grabbed one and made a weak attempt to wrap it around his wife's waist, but it was as if he knew it was all futile. If a fit 17-year-old boy couldn't hoist himself up, how would his wife make it? He released the rope, took his wife in his arms, and kissed her, and then they fell to their knees. They clung to each other as the ice floe reached the rapids where a large wave upended the floe and tossed them into the river and their deaths. Back home in Cleveland, Burrell's family was enjoying their impromptu family party Sunday afternoon when the phone rang. Mr. Heckock answered it. It was one of the concessionaires who had helped pull Iggy Roth to shore. He told him the news. About the same time, the phone at the Roth house was ringing. It was a friend of Iggy's, a young man named Weber. Iggy had called him and asked him to explain to his mom what had happened. Burrell's dad, Harry Heckcock, caught the next train to Buffalo, New York, accompanied by his friend, E.H. Zeller. He hoped he would be there when his son's body was recovered so he could return home with it. But old rivermen and the residents of the town told him there was no hope for any recovery until the ice was gone in the spring, and even then, very likely, the body would never be released from the whirlpool. There was, that day, however, an unexpected rescue. Remember when the floe broke the first time, and the half that our castaways weren't on drifted safely to shore? That portion contained one of the small concession shanties and the next day some adventurous people walked out to it opened it and found inside a large collie dog the dog shivering from the cold and hunger jumped out and licked their hands the day after the ice bridge disaster the family of eldridge and clara stanton arrived they found some rivermen and paid them to patrol the shore for a few days, knowing it unlikely the Stantons would appear from beneath the thick piles of ice, but compelled to try nonetheless. Then they had a long talk with the owner of the hotel where the couple was staying and collected the purchase they had made on their trip. Mr. Heckcock returned home without his son, but Mrs. Heckcock didn't want to give up. Spring came, and that May, she went to Niagara Falls herself to urge a renewed effort to find Burrell's remains. She told reporters she knew it was a long shot, but hoped a gentle, personal plea from her would encourage the rivermen to keep looking. But neither Burrell nor the Stantons were ever seen again. After Iggy returned to Cleveland, he told his story, and the details of his friend's heroism was repeated all over the country. The Toronto Star published an editorial recalling Burrell's selflessness. It read, "'Burrell Heckcock of Cleveland, Ohio, was but a boy. Yet he turned back to help Mr. Stanton with his wife. He could have escaped, for the companion with whom he was with reached safety.' He may not have known that he was actually choosing between life and death at that second, but he did know that the peril of the woman was greater than his own, and he promptly increased his own to reduce hers. It was the decision of a brave mind, and his subsequent conduct was in keeping with the views of him. When the ice broke and separated him from the man and woman— Strangers whose names he did not know, he waved his hand to them encouragingly. He was an only son, said his friend, who survived, and this will break his mother's heart. But from all over America, mothers will send sympathy to one who mourns the loss of such a son. In April, a major F.A. Cofton of London, England, arrived in Cleveland to gather information about Burrell. He said he represented the Royal Humane Society, and they wanted to do something to honor him. Later that year, a bronze tablet was dedicated to Burrell at the Glenville Congressional Church at St. Clair Avenue and Eddy Road Northeast in Cleveland. And before the year was out, Eldridge Stanton's brother, O.B. Stanton of Toronto, brought to Cleveland a large silver loving cup. He had made two of them and presented one to the Toronto school where the dead couple's daughter was a pupil and gave the second to Hazeldell school where Burrell had attended. He requested that each year teachers select a winning essay on the topic of heroism from among their pupils and etch the winner's name on the cup. It's been more than a century. I don't know if those other memorials still exist, but there is one that does. On the Canadian side of the river, at the observation tower above the Maid of the Mist landing, is a bronze tablet. It recalls the disaster that winter day more than a 100 years ago and singles out a brave Cleveland boy for his heroism.
3: My God, that was so vivid. So this whole tragedy played out over an hour?
2: You know, that's what the news report said. It it seems like so much time, and yet there really wasn't much anyone could do in 60 minutes. I have to believe when their time came, they went quickly. You know, I've seen those rapids many times, and those rocks look merciless.
3: Now, I've gone to Niagara Falls a couple times, but I know you have gone quite a bit more I'm sure you've seen
2: that whirlpool oh yeah yeah crazy thing is I don't know how you get down there I know Tom has but so from the American side there must be some kind of path I have looked down there and seen people right at the shoreline some people go fishing I've read stories about people who go swimming right there only to be snagged by the current and drawn into that boiling swirl it's crazy
3: Also, if you like stories about Niagara Falls, maybe we should point out that we did another episode that ended up with a body going over the falls.
2: Oh, yeah. The mystery of whether Cleveland baseball star Ed Delahanty jumped into the river or accidentally fell.
3: Well, if you haven't heard that one, you can always find our link on our website, ohiomysteries.com. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
2: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Steel Ivory is the sister duo of Kaylee Demlow and Kristen Denton, a pair of singer-songwriters who grew up in Reynoldsburg, Ohio. They've been pursuing their musical careers full-time in Nashville, but they come home frequently to perform for their Ohio fans. In fact, you can catch them on July 3rd, at the Edison Brewing Company in Kahana, Ohio. Between performances, the ladies are in the studio recording more music, like tonight's brand new release, a smile-inducing song about a woman's love of her dog. You can follow Steel Ivory on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. You can look for their YouTube channel, or just go straight to their website, www.steelivory.com.
3: Well, let's have another listen to Girl's Best Friend by Steel Ivory and we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Everyone says
1: diamonds are a girl's best friend but I don't know why that big rock on your hand won't stop the teardrops when you cry It might make you feel like a princess and be pretty nice to look at But I've got Better than Girls play.
0: you